Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Done, 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 done. (laughs) (laughs) This is my best Olympics opening music impression. (laughs) I am sure many of our listeners will join me when I say I am so so excited that the Olympics are finally here. I love the Olympics. I was born in an Olympic year. I'm not going to tell you which one. Um, But five years of waiting, dress listeners, and we are finally ready to celebrate the 2020, now 2021 Tokyo Summer Olympics, quote, where the world comes to compete, feel inspired, and be together. That's from olympics.com. Their words, not mine, but I do happen to agree. (laughs) There is something just so uplifting and communal about these events, even though most of us, you know, watch them from the comfort of our own home. Of course. So in classic dressed fashion, we will be taking a deep dive into the power, symbolism, and significance of dress to this world-renowned, almost 3,000-year-old event. Yes. And today, the relationship between the Olympics and the fashion industry is well-established, especially here in the U.S., where the quintessential American fashion designer Ralph Lauren has been the official outfitter of the Olympic and Paralympic teams. And Ralph Lauren produces their opening and closing parade looks and has been doing so since 2008. Then, of course, we also have the competition wear, which has been driving the technological innovations made by major sports brands like Nike and Adidas. And they kind of battle it out every two (laughs) years to decide who's going to get the team and athletic sponsorship. But when exactly were these types of relationships between fashion and the Olympics solidified? And perhaps even more importantly, what role has dress played in the history of the Olympic Games and why does it matter? We are on a mission today to find out. Yes, and we are bringing you a multi-part series where we'll be looking at the significance of clothing worn by Olympic athletes throughout history. We'll be highlighting the social and cultural significance of dress to arguably inarguably, actually, the most celebrated athletic competition in the entire world. And obviously, this is a huge topic with so (laughs) many interesting angles, especially when you consider all of the different countries who have participated. Today, athletes in the Winter and Summer Olympics come from over 200 countries and compete in over 400 events. But based on available resources and time, we will largely be focusing on the U.S. Olympic team because there is simply no way to cover it all, which is not something, April, that the original Olympians of ancient Greece knew much about anyways, but more on that in a bit. Yes, because dress or lack of dress has (laughs) been a central and potent feature of the Games since its inception. You know, and this is um, imbued with a myriad of meanings as diverse as the tens of thousands of Olympic athletes who have participated in the Games since its inception. And as as we know, and we talk about all undressed, 
all the time. That's why we're here. We know that the clothed body is a site ripe for identity formation. And in the case of Olympic athletes, what they wear on the field holds meaning not just for the individual who wears them, but also the nation who they wear these clothes and uniforms for. As one Olympic official remarked of athletes at the 1932 Olympics, quote, when they go abroad as the Olympic team, they are taking part in a great and solemn international event. They are there in uniform, representing their country, just as much as are the officers and men of the Army and Navy when they are abroad, end quote. And arguably, I guess we could say this kind of still holds true today. Oh, absolutely. So, dress listeners, with the world watching, what does Olympic clothing say without having to say a word? Dress detective hats on April, or perhaps in keeping with the Olympic spirit, let's put on our honorary olive wreath crowns, because we are heading back to 776 BC to the site of one of the first recorded Olympic Games in history. And the irony, perhaps, being dress listeners, that in an episode dedicated to the importance of clothing, these original Olympic athletes Or none. Yes. And (laughs) we're going to get into that here in a second. But I prefer the mythical origin stories of the Olympics, of which there are several, including the myth that Heracles, son of the mighty god Zeus, created the athletic festival to honor his father. But beyond ancient lore, the first Olympics recorded in the historic archive were held in 776 BCE when a cook by the name of Corobus became the first Olympic champion after running and winning a foot race. But it was actually likely cast that the games were held long before this first event was ever recorded and written down. So the games were named after the site of their location, the sacred city of Olympia. And in many ways, we can say that these games are similar today. I mean, after all, they were an athletic competition that was held every four years, and it was intended as a display of strength and honor and pride. It was held in front of tens of thousands of cheering spectators, and the games included many sports familiar to us today, such as running, jumping, javelin, and discus throwing, wrestling, and even boxing. But in other ways, they were completely different. For one, they only included Greek athletes. Two, women were prohibited from participating in the events, and married women were even barred from attending. Three, athletes could quite literally fight to the death. And, oh, right, uh, (laughs) what we were referring to earlier, all of these athletes doing these athletic feats, they were naked. So (laughs) I'm I'm a tad confused about what this logistically means, but I'm not mad at it. Yeah, and today the Summer and Winter Olympics are broadcast every two years to billions of excited viewers around the world. But obviously, for a recount of the games from ancient Grecian times, we must rely on the evocative storytelling of historians like Tony Parate, who have worked tirelessly to resurrect these experiences for us from history. And Tony has this wonderful book, The Naked Olympics, The True Story of the Ancient Games, and he really brings to life the games of 150 BC, what she calls the Woodstock of Antiquity. (laughs) (laughs) So good. And he brings it to life in really vivid details. Quote, As the first rays of dawn struck the stadium, there would have been at least 40,000 spectators crowded, jostling cheek by jowl on the roughened turf. These were the diehard sports fans of the ancient Greek world. The majority of the spectators were male. Married women were forbidden to attend, although unmarried women and girls were allowed in the stands. But whether male or female, young or old, rich or poor, every eye was impatiently fixed on the straight running track 
those putty-colored clay that had been covered by a layer of gleaming white sand, an excited murmur filled the stadium when the blast of a trumpet, the athletes began to emerge from a tunnel built into the western hillside. They appeared one by one, parading like peacocks, entirely unclothed and unadorned, yet dripping from head to toe in perfumed oils that flowed in rivulets from their curled black hair. Competing nude was a time-honored tradition of ancient Greek athletes, as much a part of Hellenic culture as drinking wine, discussing Homer, or worshiping Apollo— Only barbarians were ashamed to display their bodies. Related to initiation rites, the practices also symbolically stripped away social rank, an extraordinary gesture towards a democratic sporting ideal in the status-obsessed ancient world, end quote. Although, as Tony points out, this democracy only extended to Greek freeborn males, so women, enslaved peoples, and non-Greeks were forbidden from participation. But do not let the nakedness of these athletes confuse you about the role of dress in these ancient games. We do know, thanks to scholars like Anne Hollander, one of Cassie and I's favorites, art and fashion historian scholars, Hollander writes that the naked body itself is part and parcel to fashion, right? It is undeniably a societal beauty construct that changes over time. So no doubt these naked athletes, with their undoubtedly, again, chiseled physiques, were the pinnacle of the era's beauty standards. So despite being naked, the winning athletes of these games were not entirely undressed. Right. So today, the idea of Olympic athletes being rewarded with anything less than gold, silver, or bronze medals is completely foreign to us. But in ancient Greek times, winning athletes were given olive wreath crowns. Which we're wearing right now. Which we're wearing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Made from the branches of Olympia's sacred olive tree. And these were incredibly symbolic items of dress. They embodied the values of victory and honor, just as today's medals do. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is where the phrase crowning the champion comes from. Mm-hmm. And I will not apologize for any of my puns today. You They're just, just said gonna... out on a limb. Yeah. I <laughs> see what's happening here. They're coming all day. Just be prepared. <laughs> so these games went on for hundreds of years until Roman Christian emperors, then in control of Greece, banned all quote-unquote pagan rituals in the fourth century AD. The world would then have to wait for almost another 1,500 years for the games to return. But alas— the naked athletes would not. More after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So stay with us as we take a giant leap into the future. The origins of the so-called modern Olympics, or the Olympics as we know them today, roughly, dates to 1896, when the Olympic revival dreams of a French aristocrat named Pierre de Coubertin were realized with the advent of the Games of the First Olympiad. However, despite these claims of being the first modern Olympiad or Olympics, they were not. Hmm. There had actually been several revivals of the games throughout the 19th century. For instance, the Zappas Olympics were a series of athletic competitions held in Athens, Greece. And those were held in 1859, 1870, and 1875. They were bankrolled by these wealthy brothers. There was also this English country doctor by the name of William Penny Brooks, who had been staging his own version of the Olympic Games since 1850. And it was a After attending one of these latter games, that Coubertin, who was apparently obsessed with British athletic culture, well, he was inspired to revive the Olympic Games on an international level. And this was something that, in fact, Brooks had been working towards for decades. But it was the aristocratic Coubertin with his wealth, 
influence and connections who ultimately made this happen. And Coubertin created the International Olympics Committee, and with it successfully organized the Games of the First Olympiad, which opened with great fanfare to a reported crowd of 60,000 spectators in Athens, Greece on April 5th, 1896. And over a 10-day period, 200-plus athletes from 14 nations competed in dozens of events, which included things like cycling, gymnastics, swimming, tennis. There was shooting, fencing, wrestling, and weightlifting. And these Olympic winners did receive medals, but not the type you might think, because there was gold at this time was really expensive. So first place winners took home silver medals, while second place took home copper, and third did not get a thing. <laughs> Nothing. So the first gold medals would not be awarded to winners until the 1904 Olympics. So what of the dress or the quote-unquote style of the 1896 Olympics? A formal black-and-white portrait of four American track and field athletes reveals that uniforms were indeed present at these first Olympics. In this photograph, they're all wearing matching white sleeveless t-shirts or what we kind of call like a muscle tee today. They have on knee-length shorts and cleats. And the t-shirt has some sort of a sash or stripe on it. It's a little bit hard to say whether it's a stripe or a sash, but it extends across their chest from down from the wearer's right shoulder. And thanks to an image of one of these athletes, Robert Garrett, mid-discus throw, we know that an American flag was also pinned to the athlete's shirts in competition. So no doubt this was added so to quickly signify a player's nationality while competing. So while uniforms are present at these first Olympics, it's clear by looking at other teams that uniforms had not yet taken on the nationalist symbolism that they would in the ensuing years. For instance, there was an opening ceremony at these games that featured a parade of athletes, but they were not yet separated by country. So it's kind of it's a like free everybody for all. like yeah. runs out on the field. <laughs> yeah. And there was not yet a clear distinction being made between parade or dress uniforms and competition uniforms. So, like I said, kind of a free for all. Well, the 1896 Olympics were heralded as a success. The same cannot be said for the 1900 and 1904 (laughs) Olympics, which were held in Paris and in St. Louis, respectively. We know we're not going to go into too much detail about this, and and there are actually other podcasts dedicated to these very topics. You can check out um, Stuff You Missed in History Class with our producer, Holly Fry, and also Ridiculous History with our ex-producer, Noel Brown. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks for the support. Um, But let's just say that the 1900 and 1904 Olympics were deemed disastrous for a myriad of reasons, including the fact that they really lacked international participation. So over 70% of the athletes that participated in the Paris Olympics were French, followed by over 80% of American athletes in St. Louis. And the fact that these Olympics were part of each city's respective world's fairs, well, the fairs undoubtedly overshadowed the Olympic events. Yeah, and it's important to mention that almost all of these early Olympians were white males, although unlike its predecessor, the 1900 Olympics had a teeny tiny bit of diversity. It was at these Olympics that the first black athlete and Olympic gold medalist, Haitian-born French rugby player Constantine Enriquez de Zibiera, played in these games, as did the first women. There were 22 women in total. And this included the golfer Margaret Abbott, who became the first American woman to win an Olympic gold medal. But 
get this, because this is a really crazy story. During her lifetime, she never knew she was an Olympic champion. Wait, I don't understand. (laughs) How is this possible? She thought she had simply won the Paris City Championship (laughs) for golf. (laughs) Okay. So basically, the 1900 Olympics was a giant fail. And we make a point to mention Abbott's accomplishments because, you know, while Kerbertan and the Olympic Committee did seem to envision a truly multicultural, multiracial, international competition with athletes from all five continents of the world, you know, as represented in the five Olympic rings, well, they never meant the Games to include women. No, they did not. Coubertin found the very thought, quote, en practical, en interesting, <laughs> en gaily. I won't, I won't subject you to my French accent. I'll just continue <laughs> the quote. And I do not hesitate to add improper. It is not in keeping with my concept of the Olympic Games in which I believe that we have tried and must continue to try to put the following expression into practice. The solemn and period exaltation of male athleticism based on internationalism by mean of fairness in an artistic setting with the applause of women as a reward. Wow. (laughs) This is obviously a far cry from today's Olympics of the 11,000 athletes of all genders, religions, creeds from over 200 countries that are featured in this year's Olympics. Almost half are women. And this includes New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard, who is the first transgender athlete to ever compete at an Olympic Games. So we've come a long way. Yes. Um, And because of the many failures of the 1900 and 1904 Olympics, some historians don't even cite the origins of the, quote, modern Olympic Games until the London Games of 1908. And and by the way, I just want to point out that the 1908 London Games were the longest Olympic Games in history, clocking in at 187 days, Cass. I'm going to go on the record saying I would watch 187 <laughs> days of Olympics. Yes. One notable fact about the 1908 Games is that they were the first to feature a parade of nations, kind of as we know it today, where the athletes are separated by country. So each team walked behind their own nation's flag. And this, of course, you know, is now a staple of the Olympic Games ever since. It is really with this new addition to the opening ceremony that it becomes clear that countries had realized and begun to harness the performative and symbolic power of dress. So basically with your entire team and by extension country on display for tens of thousands of people, it became increasingly clear that clothing was of the utmost of importance, at least for some countries. The official report of the ceremony commented on many of the uniforms featured in the Parade of Nations, remarking that the teams of, quote, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland were especially noticeable for their neat and uniform appearance, while countries in which conscription is the rule showed its influence very plainly in the military precision with which their athletes marched. And Canada should also be noted for their uniform appearance, which consisted of an all-white ensemble of a short-brimmed cap, sweater, and trousers, the Canadian leaf insignia pinned on the wearer's chest. The U.S. athletes, while not in matching uniforms per se, all wore suits, albeit of all different styles and colors, the only uniformity in their appearance being what appeared to be a beret bearing the U.S. insignia. And this is an early example of the distinction between parade and dress clothing and competitive clothing. And this distinction is going to become more solidified as we go through the decades. Yeah, and there's something super interesting about this 1908 
parade opening ceremony, and that is what the United Kingdom wore. They are actually entirely ununiform in appearance. Some are wearing tan cardigans, what appear to be, these are black and white images. Others are wearing navy blazers. Others are wearing t-shirts and shorts. (laughs) The Olympics are in their home country after all, so you would think that they would be all about putting on a good face or good costumes, have you, but they presented the exact opposite. And I think it would take a bit more sleuthing to figure out why, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Yes. Maybe we'll leave that to our listeners to (laughs) to go down the rabbit hole on that one. The official report also remarked on, quote, the Danish ladies in gymnastic costumes were loudly and deservedly applauded. Part of the 36 women who participated in these games, the Danish gymnastics team painted quite the picture in their white long sleeve tops and bifurcated short skirt ensembles worn with nude stockings and shoes. And there are so many wonderful images of them practicing their gymnastics with, of course, with their Gibson girl updo hairstyles, you know, where their hair is just like piled on top of their heads. Yeah, doing flips and all kinds of things. <laughs> How did they really get it amazing. to stay, I wonder? <laughs> no. Other women athletes at these games included women archers who simply wore fashionable clothing, as was appropriate to the sport. So there's several fantastic images, and there's even surviving film footage of these women, which we'll put a link in our show notes so you can check it out, because they're just fabulous, shooting arrows in their hat, you know, their full updos. They have their hats, their shirt waists, which are worn over their corseted frames, and then they have neckties and those long flaring skirts. There's really nothing women could not do in fashion. Right. And the Olympics would only continue to grow with 2,400-plus athletes from 28 countries participating in the 1912 Olympics. This time, the U.S. came with matching parade or dress ensembles, as they would come to be known as the distinction between parade and competition wear became more distinct. At the 1912 Olympics, the hundreds of U.S. athletes wore boater hats, blue blazers, and white pants. Very jaunty, it sounds. And again, other countries remained less formal. Japan's two athletes wore t-shirts and shorts, walking in front of another four gentlemen in their party, and they were wearing what can only be described as formal evening attire. You know, they had on (laughs) a top hat and tails. I'm like, okay, all right, I see what we're doing here. Of course, the most interesting aspect of clothing worn in the 1912 Olympics was not in the opening ceremony, but rather on the track as worn by the Native American track and field star Jim Thorpe of the Sac and Fox Nation, who won two gold Olympic medals for his athletic feats. And this was a feat made all the more remarkable by the fact that someone had stolen Jim's running shoes before he was supposed to compete. But he did not let that stop him. No, no. He actually cobbled together a mismatched pair of cleats. He even found one cleat apparently in the trash can, and it was way too big for him. And so to make up for the difference, he just wore layers and layers of socks until the cleat fit, and he then soon ran his way to victory. Soon after, Thorpe was actually stripped of his medals when it was revealed that he had previously been semi-professional, meaning that he was a paid athlete at one point. And this, of course, speaks not to just the classist nature of the Olympics, but the racist ones as well. Since the beginning of Coubertin's games, athletes were expected to be unpaid amateurs. This is obviously a luxury largely afforded at this time to upper-class white men and women. 
And we highly recommend Googling Thorpe and learning a little bit more about his life because this little brief mention of him here does not even remotely do his legacy justice. And, you know, it does certainly speak to the history-making role a simple item of two, including a shoe, um, can do and play in the fate of an Olympic athlete. 1912 was an incredible year, actually. It's also memorable in that it was the first year that women's swimming was a competitive event. Although the United States actually barred its women athletes from competing. And I could not find a primary source referencing this, but I did find a few different secondary sources that said the women were barred because of the revealing nature of women's swimsuits at this time. And our listeners will probably remember from our two-part episode on the history of the swimsuit that body-revealing swimsuits in 1912 were still highly controversial and in some cases still illegal. There's actually a photo of the British women's swimming team from 1912 that really speaks to this concern because the flash of the camera actually revealed the wearer's naked bodies beneath their wool-knit swimsuits. But what other choice did they have? They were going to swim. Yeah, and that's a great question, Cass, and it, and it speaks directly to this other theme that kind of comes up and, and will come up again later on in this series that we're doing on the Olympics. But the Olympics would really forge a relationship between technology and sportswear that would continue to propel innovations in Olympic competitive sportswear forward. So, you know, now this is a multi-billion dollar industry a year. And at that time, though, in 1912 or so, it was just a twinkle in the eye of manufacturers and designers. It would be another 20 years before manufacturers and fashion brands would begin to fully harness the benefits that being associated with prized Olympic athletes could have for their business. More Olympic dress after a brief sponsor break. World War I prevented the 1916 Olympics from happening, but the effects of the war echoed in the opening ceremony of the 1920 Olympics, held less than a year after the war's end. The United States actually made quite the showing. Its civilian athletes were dressed in matching ensembles of blue and white, and the men and women both donned quite fashionable silhouettes comprised of boater hats, uh, blue blazers and white trousers for the men, similar really to what they had worn in 1912. And then the women wore the boater hats, but they matched it with blue cardigans, white blouses, and skirts. And the shortened henline of the post-war era, the most notable post-war fashion change for women, was on full view. The civilian athletes were followed by dozens of Army contestants in full uniform. All the U.S. athletes wore their country's insignia, walking together as a symbol of the resilience of a nation. And no doubt, similar statements were made by all of the countries involved in this Olympics. And the Olympics undoubtedly represented hope for a peaceful future among nations. By 1920, the United States had finally caught up at the times and allowed women swimmers to compete, and this included diver Eileen Riggin of Newport, Rhode Island, who won her first Olympic gold medal at the age of 14. And there are so many fantastic images of her from this competition, but one just really stands out above the rest. In this image, she stands confidently in front of the American flag that towers over her petite frame, as does her male counterpart, who is holding the flag, and both are attired in their opening ceremony formal dress uniforms. Like her fellow competitors, Eileen is wearing a boater, a blazer cardigan, and a skirt, but due to her age, her skirt hangs just to her knee, and it's paired with knee-high socks and white sneakers. And with her bobbed hair, Eileen's ensemble and her confident gaze 
hints at the impending era of the flapper, aka the new modern woman of the 20s. And we're not quite there yet, but she's going to rise to prevalence in the decade as it goes on. Thanks to the LA84, so Los Angeles 84 Foundation Digital Library and their fantastic digital archive and database, we have Eileen's oral history, which is one of over 100 oral histories taken by the foundation of Olympian and Paralympian athletes who competed in the games as far back as 1920. It's just an incredible resource. The archive also has official reports from the United States Olympic Committee of every Olympic Games from 1928 to 1988, which you will hear us reference repeatedly as the series continues. And I just want to say thank you to Eileen's interviewer because she really asked a lot about the clothing that Eileen wore. April, can we do a bit of role play? You can play the interviewer. I'll play Eileen. I'll dust off my acting <laughs> chops from my youth and see how it goes. Uh, I'm not going to dust <laughs> off my chops because I ain't got any. So, okay. But here goes. What about the opening ceremonies? The opening ceremonies were very impressive, but they did not have Hollywood touches to it. I do remember lots of pigeons being released. Of course, we stood out because we were females and there were few women athletes at all, just a handful of swimmers from other countries. Tell me about your uniform. Well, the uniform was this long white flannel skirt because the styles that year were skirts to the ankles and we also wore a navy blue jersey blazer. It wasn't a bad uniform as uniforms go, but Helen Wainwright and I were children and we were very small, as I've said before. They had to design a little skirt for us because we would have looked so ridiculous as if we were playing house and we'd come out in those long flannel skirts. And then what did you have? An insignia on our lapel. You had a blouse and a jacket? A blazer? Yes, and then they didn't have any hats for the girls. We wore men's hats, straw hats. And what kind of shoes? Just Oxford-type white. White? Did they hurt your feet? No, these were real Oxfords for walking. All white, I think. I have to go look. I have a picture of it. I have to see what kinds of shoes we wore. We did look rather silly in our hats. They were too big for us, and we had to stuff them with paper so they'd fit, you know? They were men's hats, the smallest size. And we had the USA insignia. And the swimsuits? They gave us suits to wear that were the official uniform, and we just died when we saw them. They were made of mercerized cotton, which is transparent, of course. You can see right through that, and when it's wet, it clings, and it had sleeves. They had sleeves to the elbow. You could see through it. Never mind that, but it was down to your elbow. Sleeves to the elbow and, like, a scooped neck? Yes, a scooped neck. It was pretty high. Then there were legs down to above the knees, thigh length. They were just awful looking, so we got around that. They were like a leotard. Oh, but nothing like a leotard. They didn't fit like a leotard to begin with. When they were wet, they fit too well. But we wore our own suits. The girls used to wear black silk bathing suits for racing, only for racing. And they also are rather transparent. But we always had the little skirts. So these suits that they gave us to wear over there didn't have skirts. They were just to the elbow, to the knee, and one piece. They clung, and the girls wore their black silk racing suits to compete. Helen and I did not compete in swimming at that time, but the next time we did. So the divers were just given these funny outfits, but you all decided to wear your own. Not all of us. All of us swimmers. We wore our own because we looked so terrible in these suits. <laughs> okay, the end. <laughs> That's the end of my non-acting. <laughs> um, Eileen's oral history is quite fascinating. 
and that it gives us insights into not just the games, but also 1920s Paris. And something that she was a little bit better equipped to fully appreciate when she came back at the age of 18 to compete in the 1924 Olympics held in Paris. So, fun fact, the 1924 Olympics were the first to introduce the Winter Olympics, held in the same year as the Summer Olympics, up until 1992. But, back to Eileen, she tells us about her and her teammates going to Longchamp, the race course. We've talked about the race course and its connection to fashion many times on the show. But um, Eileen says, quote, We were told to dress well because all of the models would be there displaying the fashions for women. And Eileen goes on to talk about being in the era of the flapper, smoking cigarettes, dancing the Charleston in, quote, short evening dresses with lots of fringe and beads, and how everybody was talking about Zelda Fitzgerald. Quote, we just loved the atmosphere of being in Paris. It was thrilling. There is another incredible image of her, and this time she's with her fellow divers, Gertrude Ederly, who, fun fact, the first woman, she was the first woman to swim across the English Channel. So, you know. No big deal. Helen Wainwright, the only woman who has ever won silver medals in both swimming and diving. So here's Eileen with both of these women. And they're all three wearing their fashionable 1924 parade dress uniforms, which included, of course, the ever-fashionable cloche hat. Um, They have these fitted white blazers that have the USA insignia on the breast pocket. And then, of course, half-length skirts. Notably, actually, what's really interesting is that their skirts show signs of hemming. And I'm talking like huge hems. Like, I think one of the women has like a six-inch hem and you can see it. And going through all of these Olympic reports, there's actually a lot of instances where team captains or team coaches send in their report of the Olympics and their their team's experience. And they complain about the poor fit of these uniforms. And that's because in many instances, most athletes, I would argue, weren't fit until they arrived at the Olympic city. In one specific instance from the 1924 reports, there's a track coach who recommends to the Olympic committee that, quote, the United States uniform, particularly in track and field, be changed to colors more distinctive as there is at present too large a predominance of white. This would prevent errors in judging the finish of short races and would help teammates in the team to distinguish each other more rapidly in the team races. (laughs) We're going to finish out this decade with the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, where it would not appear that the committee heeded this track coach's request to change the white uniforms, but they did now have a distinctive red, white, and blue stripes added to the chest and the leg. And thanks to all these Olympic reports, we also know that the Olympic committees were furnishing Olympic athletes with three types of uniforms by this time. For men, this included the dress or parade suits, which was a beret and a cardigan with a U.S. insignia combined with a shirt, tie, trousers, and shoes. Then they were also furnished with competition suits of white tanks and shorts with the U.S. tricolored stripes. And for the very first time, sweatsuits with the letters USA emblazoned across the front. Wow, we've come a long way, Cass, from the that ragtag bunch of people wearing <laughs> a bunch of non-matching suits. Yeah, <laughs> we sure have. And also, who knew that sweatsuits dated back to the 1920s? Because I did not, but it makes perfect sense that they were on full display at the Olympics. 
And the 1928 Olympics was actually the first to introduce the Olympic flame, the idea taken from ancient Greek traditions in which a sacred fire burned all throughout the Olympic Games, although it was not yet brought in ceremoniously by an athlete at the conclusion of an Olympic relay like it is today. Today, they bring it all the way from Athens to the respective uh, Olympic city. That does not start until 1936, and we have a whole lot coming on 1936 in the next episode. But all that being said, it is quite the sight to imagine the opening ceremony of the 1928 Games with the flame burning bright over all the athletes parading proudly in their uniforms, a representation of their country, looking forward to the events to come in which they hope to make their country and themselves proud. We would actually like to end today's episode with the oral history of American diver Clarita hunsberger Nahir, who was a participant in the 1924 and also the 1928 Games, and hopes that you will leave this episode as inspired as she was walking into one of the two opening ceremonies. But before we do, you might have noticed that we still have a considerable amount of Olympic ground to cover, almost another 100 years in front of us. So please join us on Thursday for part two of this series where we are going to pinpoint the origins of the relationship between the American fashion industry, the Olympics, and all of this during the Great Depression. So back to Clarita. She says, We were all lined up there underneath the stadium, ready to come out of the tunnel. And I recall that they passed the word along, let's all walk in with our heads high. They also passed the word that we were to come in at the signal that the French announcer gave, which was the United States in French. So les Etats-Unis. So we were primed and it happened. We stood up so tall. I see people now come in so casual, but not in 1924 or 28. We stood very tall when we marched in. We came out of that darkness, that tunnel, into the light of day, while the whole place, I couldn't believe it, it just came alive. I could not have anticipated what it was going to be. Coming out into the bright light and having everybody stand up, and people were standing and cheering and shouting and waving flags, and the tears rolled down our faces. I turned and looked behind me, and men had the tears too. And maybe now I'm getting a little misty. So on that note, that does it for us today, dress listeners. That is until Thursday. May you consider the pride and power woven into this year's Olympic uniforms next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you always will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producer, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.